I believe. Well, I, I'm, I'm Charlie Nesson. I've become known as Charlie the Infuriator. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know what that's about, ask Gene Koo. We were at a LexisNexis event just, uh, just the other night. I won't bore you with it now, but it's got plenty of substance. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, founded the Berkman Center just as suggested as a best shot and uh, have seen its mission as seeking to balance uh, by amplifying the efforts of formation in the open environment, the closed systems of for-profit and government. That is, I'm imagining the future space as essentially a, a rhetorical space with centers of power in it, on the one side open, on the other side closed. And the opportunity that the internet has provided to actually be the environment in which an open sensibility can form and be built in a powerful enough <coughs> fashion that it can actually balance for the future the forces of the for-profit environment and the government environments, the, the environments that are essentially closed. The mission, though, of our conference <coughs> this spring, which is what I'm so excited to talk to you about, uh, the opportunity to do this came up rather suddenly, and I accepted, and I'm so grateful for your interest. It's a pleasure to have you here. The idea of the conference for the spring is to focus the questions how open should our university be to internet and society? How closed should our university be to government and nonprofit? How, how much should our university collaborate with government and nonprofit in closing spaces? So essentially, it's the issue of openness in the context of our university, but conceiving our university first in a total way of faculty, students, staff, alumni, friends, but also our university as in some way representative of university world as a whole. So the thought is to try and put on the table questions that relate to the reconstitution, the rethinking of core algorithms of the university so as to make them responsive to this new environment. I can give you an example. <coughs> if you think of the university as in algorithmic terms, if you, if you take a kind of technological way of thinking about the university, it's a machine. It's a machine that produces knowledge and disseminates it. And if you look to the core algorithm, you can see that at present it's out of date. The way, for example, scholarship works in a number of our schools, the scholars produce knowledge, they then submit it voluntarily to a for-profit entity, a journal of some kind, which gives it back to scholars who volunteer their peer review which is then returned to the for-profit entity, which then prints the stuff and sells it back to our libraries at high cost and requires us to get permission 
to make copies after that and charges us a fee. And that may be an algorithm that made sense for the university back when it cost a lot of money to print. But it clearly doesn't make sense anymore. Now, that doesn't say what it should be, because there are clearly spaces within the university where closed environments are extremely important. You can start right with the classroom. There are many of our faculty that feel a closed classroom in the sense of no laptops on the table, no solitaire, no email, no whatever, no cameras. A closed classroom in which you have an eye-to-eye -eye contact with students is essential. The B school, for example, does their case methods. Their case methods are totally dependent on no one in the room being able to Google and find the answer to the case. As soon as the answer to the case is available on the net, they're out of business. And so they actually have a technology of teaching that's dependent on closed spaces. And the research labs that produce highly patentable, extraordinarily valuable material. There, there are a range of environments within the university in which the issues of openness come up in a range of different ways. Now, Derek Bach is our honorary chair, and I hope much more than honorary. These issues of the relationship of the university, Harvard University in particular, and the university world in general, to the for-profit and government entities that kind of compete in the space is something that he's been onto right from the very beginning. He's also here only for a year. So my, our feeling is that if, if, if we could help Derek educate our university, not necessarily even change anything, but educate our university and the university world about these issues, so that people could knowledgeably make change, that that would be a tremendous accomplishment of our conference. One strategy of the conference that we're clear on is that <clears throat> we're not necessarily the first to think about these problems. And in this technological environment, it would seem to us to make sense to draw some lessons from MIT, which has led the way with open courseware and has been actually producing a great deal of open code for a long time. And so I'm very hopeful that Chuck Vest will be one of our keynote speakers. And the idea of drawing some stimulation from MIT and some lessons will be one that we can get behind. It's been very odd, in fact, that the OpenCourseWare initiative at MIT has been a tremendous success all over the world, but hardly at all within the United States. Very few schools in the United States follow it. It's curious. All right, so in doing our gathering here today, I thought that this was an extraordinary opportunity because the idea of doing this conference is not just the idea of doing a one-off conference. The Berkman Center started at Harvard Law School. We are becoming a center of the university. <coughs> that is, we are becoming the Berkman Center at Harvard. And the process of doing that 
is one that we would like to be, one of following these issues and elaborating these issues in all of the schools of Harvard in a way that comes to focus in the conference. We would like to do it by a method that shows the kind of technological thinking to education that I think the Berkman Center has to offer. So process is important, and I wanted to propose a process here today. I would like to enlist you in the enterprise in the following way. First, may I pass out paper to each one of you, one sheet of paper per per. <laughs> pass around. <laughs> Here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. You out there in the Second Life audience, webcast, take this challenge. I haven't got a piece of paper, but you can send me an email. Pens will come. Soon you could become the leading paper merchant in second life. Very exciting. One of the very nicest inventions. Innovations of the Berkman Center has been the food for thought. <laughs> so I'm thinking this is going to be a food for thought. <laughs> this feels like a Eucharist. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody died, though. It's okay. <laughs> No passing pens up the table, everybody can, so pass it down that way. Oh, okay, sorry. All right, so here's the, here's the first the first challenge I would like to put to you. The issue, as I stated, is way up in the sky. It's how open should our university or universities be to internet and society? How close should we be in league with? corporation and government. But when you actually have a conference and try and galvanize focus, the issues have got to be down on the ground. They've got to be issues of openness that actually matter to people. So for example, it matters whether a teacher says laptops open or laptops closed. Laptops in the classroom. That's a real issue of openness that hits on the ground. The availability of wikis for students. That's, a, that's actually a specific issue. The question of how open the university is to corporate sponsoring of research is an issue. For example, LexisNexis is wanting to sponsor, is sponsoring research with the Berkman Center on law and technology, a field in which they have a definite interest. Is that problematic? How does one deal with that? The, the issues of openness uh, are multiple, ranging over uh, questions of copyright, access, physical, <coughs> conceptual. 
So the first challenge that I'd like to put to you is what do you think, what, what to you is the most interesting issue, an issue on which you would like to see discussion that relates to this question of where the university sits and how it positions itself in relation to the powerful forces of nonprofit and government. And I'd like you to write it down. Charlie, you keep saying nonprofit and government. But you also Excuse mean me, profit, you mean profit, like for profit and government. Okay, for profit and government. Please allow me to make that clear. <laughs> I am dealing with the for profit motive and the yeah, motive to dominate through the example. selling of fear <laughs> and security. All right. <laughs> 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 Whichever comes first. Are, are we allowed to theorize about a government or a company that support openness rather than closeness? Or have we simply moved into a post Marxist universe in which you know the multinationals and the governments are inherently opposed to uh, the forces of openness and good? Well, um. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just asking sounds, you to, yes, to, to make the theoretical a little clearer. It totally sounds like a it. topic, and the answer is, um, good and bad company. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's clearly, clearly we're looking, and I want to make this totally clear from the outset as far as the idea of commitment of Berkman to openness. It's a, it's a commitment to balance. It's not the idea that everything should be open. In fact, quite the contrary. It's the idea that one needs an open environment in which closed spaces can exist. It's like, I, I'm fond of saying, everything open, it's a desert. Everything closed, it's a prison. Somehow the balance of forces in between. I, I'm, I'm ultimately looking for a balance in the space between the power of openness, which <coughs> is the essence of the net in many ways. And I'm looking to the universities of the world as the most likely institutional base for actually grounding the values of the net. If, if government runs the net, I worry about it. If for-profit companies run the net, I worry about it. If universities, I don't know, run the net, but at least have a big interest in the net. It won't function very well. <laughs> I, a big interest. Oh, shit. Did, did we try that? <laughs> I remember that net, Charlie. Just I remember it really well. <laughs> All right, so everybody write one down. <clears throat> That's a tough question, Charlie. Yeah. Right, can you like just rephrase it? Yeah, well, right. Uh, you could, you're going to go to a, you're going to go to a conference in the spring. Yeah. It's going to have a panel discussion on just the issue that you're most interested in, uh -huh. that relates to openness, open access of journals, maybe. Technology in classrooms, maybe. Everybody on Second Life, maybe. Could be a question. 
How many people are done? Raise a hand. All right, a couple more minutes. Come on in, Eric. All right? Let's go. I want to read them. Scott, read yours. Oh, okay. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Scott. This is the way I finish it first. Um, I have an answer and a question. Um, uh, the answer is the university should incubate the laws that advance and preserve the net. And um, what comes to mind there is what we did with Creative Commons. We kind of created new, law, new laws in a way and procedures that govern the practices that will create whole new businesses. The question is, should there be an internet school just like there's a law school at <coughs> a divinity school? Should there be an internet school? Hey, Rebecca, <laughs> what do you got? Well, my answer to that is I don't think so. I think you just need to make internet integral to everything everybody's doing. But I, I guess how do we develop kind of standards or guidelines in deciding how we structure partnerships with corporations or governments in doing research so that the result maximizes or ensures that the result is going to contribute to the greater good of open and democratic discourse and that that is not limited or, or shut down in some way or, or worked against by the results of that research um, and that the results of the project, whatever it is, serve to open up knowledge and maximize cultural creativity rather than to compartmentalize and close it off to privilege, privilege money view or so on. Um, it's kind of a bit of a ramble, but um, right. yeah, I guess there. the idea being, you know, it, you got to get funding from governments and corporations to do stuff, but how do you develop the standards that ensure that, <coughs> that you're really serving the values you want to serve, the social values that you want, to, and the educational values that you want to serve? Great. Dorothy. <clears throat> right off the top of my head, because I'm out of my depth here. But I guess I wrote, in terms of a conference, what I would like to see is how to define intellectual property. And I know this is old hat to you people, but the discontinuities between traditional practices in science, research, authorship, and what the internet brings to bear are so glaring that it seems to me one would have to reconstruct both the values and the practices from writing textbooks, from publishing scientific research, uh, if we don't get on top of who owns what in this space. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in, a lot has been said about openness and innovation, but I'm interested in the need for closeness and in innovation, particularly in taking big chances or particularly subversive or especially different ideas. Uh, when everything's on the record, there's a chance that people will be embarrassed to come up with something really interesting. Uh, I think that, if, for example, if my classrooms were on the web or something, and everyone saw people raise their hands and say like stupid stuff, and <laughs> people would be less likely to say that one time where it's really interesting. So. Well, I'm not concerned so much with formal partnerships and agreements between for-profit and government entities <coughs> and universities. Uh, so much as I'm concerned with the informal relationships that develop between people 
on the outside and on the inside and how those informal friendships or, or relationships can affect research in ways that may or may not be very subtle and aren't exposed sort of to the public disinfectant of, of life. Hmm. All right, now we're going to get to reading our things instead of <laughs> the gene. Well, I guess my foundational question was before any of this is what makes universities more trustworthy than governments and for profit, what distinguishes Harvard from either of those. Um, and if you were to create a trustworthy open organization or an organization to which you would entrust openness, what would that look like? And in particular, what are the financial or economic prerequisites or business model for making a vision of openness possible and sustainable? It's fine and good for Harvard, which is a multi-billion dollar organization, to, which maybe is not distinguishable from a government or for-profit, to advance this vision. But what about the other org other universities? There's a much smaller fish out there. What, what hope do they have for openness? My question has to do with the uh, students. And the question is how to balance the benefits and rights of enrolled paying students with the open <coughs> university participants. And just to throw out a couple extremes, which maybe are complementary, but maybe are not. One is universities could be the, stu <coughs> the stewards of the collective wisdom. And the more they expand and the more people they get to enroll in an open university setting, perhaps there are economies of scale and scope involved in that, versus the responsibilities for those students that have enrolled and gotten through all the hurdles in order to get inside a university. Perhaps they're uh, complementary or not. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My issue is clarifying and, and uh, reclaiming fair use. Um, in particular, uh, <clears throat> question being whether fair use is a stepchild of the proprietary regimes, or whether fair use could be thought of as foundational arising from First Amendment claims. Um, let's see, I can't read my own handwriting. A move towards openness doesn't remove the need to support and fund the development of knowledge. It's worth a look at the question of openness in terms of economic models. How do we create open access journals that are fiscally sustainable? How do we fund research to maximize openness but still make it possible <coughs> for interested corporations and governments to participate? Excellent, Dan. Uh, should the Bayh-Dole Act be repealed mm -hmm. and all government-funded research go into the public domain? <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> um, I wrote down um, uh, podcasts from universities like Stanford, UC Berkeley, the MIT <coughs> CIO Symposium, and Harvard Extension School's computer courses have been an invaluable resource. Um, I was curious if uh, there are opportunities for smaller universities to continue to utilize this powerful medium, and also um, to have discussions or debates or town meetings uh, like the l one I went to last night, um, the Harvard Stem Cell Initiative, and um, have discussion about uh, volatile topics of interest. Okay, I have a few quick ones. Um, the, the, I'd like to see the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the library, uh, talk, talking about the library as a well-connected node of the university, the kind of um, place where it's first encounter for most issues of open access and copyright and, and ownership, <coughs> whatever that means. I'd like to know a little bit more about what ownership means. Um, uh, discussion on Stuart Schreiber's motion for a non-exclusive license for anything uh, created by the university to be put into an open repository. Um, um, some class notes issues, are they derivative works? How do they um, really interact with, um, how, how much does a professor own the class notes that I make in his class? Um, dealing with a lot of these issues, not going into a legalist 
perspective, but more just uh, law in the court of public opinion, that is, deciding among the university, um, with the university and the faculty members being the, the public, the, the, the court, and organizing in a way as to ignore the legalist perspective. And the last <coughs> is um, a way to, 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 to either do away with or improve the, the rubbish idea of a, of a vanity press um, pay-to-publish pay model, seeing if we can move past that. Thank you. <clears throat> um, my question was just broadly, or my topic of interest, I guess, was sort of genomic information software. Nothing really in particular. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how to get to this confidence in second life. <laughs> I can't see it. Christine, you want to start back down there? Sure. So um, I'm interested in the uh, issue of open access in journals, not just in the legal area where it seems like we made some strides, but um, Um, I, my interest lies mostly in turning, I guess, the, the public interest of the internet to these issues, how we can rally these people and actually get uh, our voice to be recognized. <coughs> Mine is, uh, it, it appears that, you know, a large grant or new building from a you know, private organization can tempt a direction of study in, you know, when that drops, you know, a direction that will further close access to new technology or knowledge, how can we remove that temptation? Huh? Um, I was <clears throat> thinking about kind of the business drivers of open access courses. And um, as an extension school student, um, wondering why there aren't more colleges that are doing this, and, and possibly it's because of the cost involved. But the, the real question for me is if more programs like uh, MIT's OpenCourseWare existed, perhaps the cost would be driven down to the point where any school, even the, the smaller schools that don't have a large budget, could appropriate this uh, courseware and make uh, their knowledge accessible for everyone, even in small rural towns. Um, well, the issues that I'm thinking about have been anticipated by <coughs> other uh, other people, but from, from my perspective, I run a research laboratory, direct a, a scientific center, and uh, the issues of openness in their academies, I mean, the university doesn't fund research. The university has a humongous endowment, builds buildings, but uh, those of us who work in these uh, places are left to our uh, own uh, in terms of raising money, and that uh, has huge implications, <coughs> although not as bad as some may fear, uh, that, uh, <coughs> that uh, very few of us make our living on contracts with for-profits. But when you do sign a, a research agreement with a for-profit, Harvard mandates that there be a cap on how long this information uh, is kept quarantined before it can be, it can be released. It's 30 or 40 days. Now, does that influence the integrity of the science? Well, I mean, what's the integrity of the scientist? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that there, there are ways to deal to deal with this, but uh, I'm, I, I don't know. I've not heard of Schreiber's proposal to have a repository of all knowledge in one place, but it's an interesting idea because you can't go to Harvard and say, what are we, what are we going to do with my science, for example, if they don't own it? They didn't fund it. They don't owe it. And, uh, many of us have a rancorous uh, relationship with the university for this particular reason. Um, 
you know, while my, my credentials is a reasonably liberal Democrat or in fact, I, I do uh, I do write IP, and uh, you know, isn't that uh, awful and uh, terrible? And the the awful truth of the matter is, is if you want to see um, a, a so-called discovery get put into the uh, uh, for use in, in uh, it can't be done without patents. Nobody will fund it. If there isn't the profit motive, nobody will develop <coughs> the science. And, and uh, we in universities are, uh, at least in the biologic sciences, pride ourselves on being innovative, but we do not have the resources to go from a laboratory to put something at the patient's bedside very often. So this is a huge problem and, uh, and uh, something that uh, needs reflection. I, I can only raise this as an issue without uh, providing any answers. And then I had a chance to talk to Charlie briefly before the session began. There's so many labs, so much science being done. If you simply put out everything posted in the web, I wouldn't know where the hell to begin. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, I mean, there, openness is a good thing. There are certainly certain kinds of things that can't be published now that's a huge problem. Uh, but if the journals were to collapse tomorrow and we would start something else, I mean, we'd be in a all over. I mean, it'd be a, some kind of nihilism, and, and there has to be some some process put in place of the journals. I'm totally sympathetic with the notion, why the hell should I buy knowledge that is being produced by me and my colleagues? On the other hand, that, uh, that there's a potential for chaos that's not inconsequential. Thanks. I, I have a, a case study. Uh, in the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, patient records are processed to develop quality measures and other algorithms that are then kept secret and sold to for-profit entities. It seems that this is harmful to both education and the practice of medicine, both. And it's, it's not an isolated thing. It's almost, so this is the open source as opposed to patents issue. Ben. Well, my concern sort of echoes that of Rob's, and it's, uh, it's <coughs> rather narrow. But if education in Harvard becomes open access, if lecture notes, readings, examinations all become available online and accessible to anyone, then why should one not be able to claim a certificate for the course or a degree from the university upon successful completion of that uh, course? Mm -hmm. Assuming universities exist for the advancement, preservation, and renewal of knowledge, the advancement of knowledge is a concern for varied and sometimes competing interrelated sciences. It's crucial to have both narrow and short-term and long and broad views of how these interests work for themselves and in relationship to one another. And to pursue further understanding of this dynamic through research for the balance of human interests, government, health, justice, professional, personal, etc. Um, so my questions are, does a tight-fisted approach to serving particular interests serve those interests in the long term? How might informed guidelines and standards be developed in relationship to openness, closeness, and the educational values and varied interests universities represent and serve? How can these work in a sustainable and ethical model of operation? Um, and how do we define what a sustainable and ethical model of operation is? <coughs> and then how might our universities have more effective, varied, and accessible interfaces <coughs> with the public at large and the community? Yeah. My question is kind of bureaucratic, but uh, how do the university's budget allocation and procurement processes create incentives or disincentives for greater openness? 
Uh, mine builds on that, and it, it tries to get at this general issue of good and bad companies and for-profit and non-profit and so forth. And what I would like to see is the disclosure of, of funding and the contracts for that funding within 30 days of the contract being signed. Such that, for example, in the Berkman Center, I can see last year's funding, uh, including IBM and others, uh, and I can't see it now. And, and I, I think that if, and I can't see the contracts. But if I can see the contracts, then then we can have a discussion uh, of whether or not, you know, you know, what the interests are. Maybe. Um, I was looking at the student's perspective, and I. I I was uh, thinking that um, students pay a lot of money to go to the university, they work hard to get into the university, and aggregators of web content offer easy access to these lecture notes and the podcasts, as many people have uh, mentioned. So is it fair to the students um, that, are, that are paying for this information um, to, for this information all to be accessible via the internet, um, and these businesses profiting from it, these aggregators profiting? Um, I was wondering, is kind of the in pursuing sort of a policy of openness or more openness, um, does that in any way create a threat uh, to the Harvard University brand um, or its image or its standing or its status, um, and uh, sort of for and against, and kind of how does that impact the university? What, what are the implications? <coughs> uh, my concern would be maintaining quality of being able to judge the quality of information as openness expands. My fear is that as openness expands, um, no competition. I'd, I'd want to hear from a member of each interest group. <coughs> if, if there was a panel discussion, each group. Okay. Let's see if they can reach some compromise. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm interested in uh, leveling the playing field. There is no competition between open systems and closed systems, because closed systems have natural um, advantages. They, they are hierarchical in nature. They have legal structures, and they have accounting systems and checkbooks. Open systems don't have those. Until you have those, or the power of those, in an open system, uh, you really are, just don't have a place at the table. And I do believe there's technical enablers um, so that you can have the effect of an accounting system, which is important. In the Dean campaign, we discovered we had an accounting system. Who knew? All these people just would send money on Wednesday. Um, and I think we can do those things. Technically. I think uh, people have touched on this already, but I'm interested in sort of the practicality and desirability of a digital student works archive, a comprehensive one, perhaps to the extent of having transcribers in the classrooms taking notes. And if this did exist, but it was available only to the university students and the faculty, or would we want it to be available at large? So I'm thinking about how to best go about creating standards for both the creation and the delivery of knowledge resources <coughs> so that everyone can access this information regardless of their physical ability. Right below the, right below the layer of a lot of what we're talking about because the knowledge is, is locked up in a way. It's, it's locked up on a lot of different layers. <coughs> My <coughs> concern is um, now that we're starting to get a lot of these open materials like open course for others, how do we extend engagement with those materials beyond sort of the university and this sort of one small satellite layer of sort of online courses and 40 people in the second one? Eric, are you in? 
go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my question is, what is coursework in quotes? What will it mean for coming generations of students? And why would universities engage in creating it? What are the motivations? Is there an economically viable model for open dissemination of coursework beyond the university that will encourage its creation and innovation, or is such a model needed? The question is, how can we harness technology to make distance learning a rich experience both for enrolled students and the distance learners? My direct concern, Martin's concern, is what's the role of trust, credibility, reputational systems in an open Well, just a, a very short question, which I think is both foundational to the conference, but also I would hope one of the key outputs of the conference, which is what is this core principle of openness that we're talking about that underlies the whole conference? How should we define that, especially in opposition to some concepts of closed that we're also talking about? Great. Um, I wonder how to incorporate the full breadth of humanities and intellectual history for meaningful open discourse in an academic milieu of hyper-specialization and what's becoming really sort of specialized jargon or, or <laughs> private language. For an example, what do we do to not only allow but assist librarians, medievalists, Egyptologists offer the lessons learned from their idiosyncratic research and knowledges uh, in true becoming true leaders of um, in internet real politics, and how will bringing this breadth of specialized knowledge online, expressed in an accessible everyman way, uh, to any school child, change what academics do to remain legitimate and relevant? Um, I posed two questions. The first, rather <coughs> predictably. Um, what role should the library play in defining this question of how open our universities should be? And I would separate that from what role they might actually play, but really looking at what role they should probably play, given the history of libraries and librarianship. Um, and the second is, what is the historical context for this question? Um, what events or technologies have universities or have societies faced in the past that we can learn from and answer question touching on something which essentially runs the university nowadays, which raises the very, the extremely vitally important to the very frivolous email. Uh, at the college, there's been a lot of talk about outsourcing our <coughs> email and calendaring systems such as it is to other people, to people like Google or Microsoft. Uh, but it brings up important questions of who owns the email, who controls it, as it is now sending it is unverified and virtually unverifiable. Uh, there's no system of trust in place, and uh, it's, at least at the college, it's badly, badly out of date. Uh, how, can set, how can bringing that forward into well, the 21st century, where the, you have more than 200 megabytes of space for your email, how can that, how can that reflect this spirit of, of guarded, trusting openness, which we're trying to foster here? is about bringing humanities into the open access world because right now when we talk about open access most of it is about science and technology and medicine and that kind of thing humanities are largely left out of the picture if you look at the proportion of humanities and social science journal open access journals to uh, science journals it's just
crazy and also like it's really difficult i think much more difficult to teach humanities in an open courseware kind of setting than it is to teach sciences and humanities so i'm interested in, in how we can kind of bridge that gap my question sort of goes along what charlie said <coughs> that you know all open is a desert and all closed <laughs> is a prison so how do you enable a reward system that would balance the two in being open sort of like a business model, I guess, and being rewarding something that is open as well as rewarding something that is closed if you share it or if you contain it, and then the lifespan for those rewards. I mean, if we're, barring we're talking about utopian socialism where everything is, there's no need for everything, I guess, there's no need for, for <coughs> rewards. How do you reward something that you give away versus how do you reward something <laughs> that you keep that you can sell or that you have a bargaining chip for? I keep thinking about um, the privilege of Harvard and as difficult as it is for some people here to attract the corporations or the, the for-profits and the governments, um, for other places it's that much more difficult. And there's a reason for that, um, that at Harvard we have that privilege, there are very intelligent minds here. How do we teach everybody about what the lack of privilege of everybody else so how does that factor in and how do we show them what would happen if we were more open how would that affect everybody um, I actually got in so I think <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> alright I think that we've gone around unless Indigo wants to put in Dorothy? I put in one footnote which is I don't know how accurate it is but we ha we've been talking about virtual openness. Harvard has been lagging in the building of foreign outposts, and but it's beginning to catch up very quickly. So that they're looking at Dubai, they've got something going in Hong Kong, Singapore. As those are built in number, the same questions have to be raised because those will be a form of openness as the same faculty is teaching abroad <coughs> in new buildings bearing a Harvard name. Saudi Arabia's got one in Canada. And at one time, it was the schlock universities from England that were handing out degrees <coughs> in the Middle East. Now it's the Harvards, the Yales, Columbia's, they're all fighting for physical space to do this. So that, I think that has to be thought of in parallel with this question of what constitutes openness. Yes, Jim. Uh, just, um, I, just interesting note on the countries that you mentioned, I think none of them are democracies. Back to the you know, for-profit, non-profit. Mm -hmm. well, democracies <laughs> already have their <laughs> own universities. <laughs> Fascinating thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That list, Dubai. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I haven't put mine on the table. My, my specific question has to do with Google and whether the deal that was made, is being made between Google and universities is a good deal for the university world. It's, uh, what is the deal exactly? So. The deal is at Harvard's secret. Mm -hmm. Well, there we start. <laughs> <laughs> the deal at Harvard is secret. So when, yes it is, um, when I write to the general counsel and say, is Yahoo 
when, when we are delivered from Google, the golden disk with all our digitized bits on it, are we constrained from allowing Yahoo to crawl it? Did I hear yes back there? <laughs> yes, uh, you, you're out from under the NDA, is that right, Terry? Because the general counsel told me he couldn't tell me that. That was secret. Of course, he said, you can expect that Google would have negotiated for something like that. But if you can't crawl things, they're not open. Yeah, so, all right, so uh, here, just to pose my Google Charlie, question. Charlie, we have a right to get there. But all right, so just to pose a question of the kind which at least could stimulate discussion. Here, I ask you to imagine yourself hypothetically as the genius, the strategic genius of Google. You're sitting on more money than anybody has ever <coughs> sat on before. And you dominate the richest internet space that there is, the search space. And you say to yourself, how could we protect ourselves against the potential in the future of competition from somebody that comes along with a slicker algorithm? Well, one way would be to get some form of exclusive on the knowledge of the great libraries of the world. Well, they'll never do an exclusive. Yes, but if we offer to digitize their collection, and if it's truly a pain in the ass to digitize a collection such that once it's done, it's unlikely that the universities will do it again, and we pick them off one by one, telling them that it's greatly to their advantage to have their collections digitized. Who else is going to do it for you? Perhaps they'll do it just for the cost of us doing it. And we can build ourselves an immense shield against competition for the future that, yes, isn't absolutely impenetrable, but it's mighty thick. Now, how much would that be worth to the strategic thinker sitting on Google Billions? So, yeah, a lot. A lot. And what it says, though, is it says, who represents the university world? Has Nobody. Anyone, Charlie, has anyone looked into what they did with public universities? Yes, the University of California and the University of Michigan are both FOIA sites, and their contracts are public. University of Michigan contract was early drafted and is just one of the worst contracts I've ever looked at. I can't tell what the hell it means. The University of California is a little bit better and basic here's here is what Google would say. Google would say, our contract is not exclusive. California, Harvard, anyone could make a deal with Yahoo tomorrow to have Yahoo come in and digitize their collection, just as we've done. It's true, you'd have to duplicate the effort. But all right, so you have to duplicate the effort. And there is undoubtedly some price at which Harvard would agree to let another competitor digitize its collection. No matter how much the trouble, there's some clearing price. And all right, that may be true, and that, that is exactly the size of the shield that Google's built. 
so that the, the new company with the better algorithm has got to come along and invest all of that before it can say to the world, we search the great libraries of the world, as does Google. All right. At, at least this is a question that arises in my mind. I would like to see it explored. I've been amazed to see Harvard University deal with its core asset, the library of the university, with the sharpest corporate entity in the world in internet space. I mean, just think of it in terms of the bargaining table. You've got the sharpest internet folk in the world dealing with Harvard. <laughs> so who was it that they dealt with at Harvard? It was our librarians, nice, good people, Sid Verbus, an <coughs> honorable man. Terry Martin, no doubt, an honorable man. Right, Terry? I wasn't at the table. Right, right, right. I wanted to do more, actually. It's costing me money to send books to Google. Really? Mm -hmm. The reason we did it was we thought, it, you know, that this is a nice resource. We ought to share it with the world. And now you're, Mr. Openness, is criticizing Google. I, I tell you what I'm criticizing. <laughs> I don't think we made a good deal. I, I love the fact that the books are going to be made available to a very wide audience. But I hate the fact that we didn't get bupkis for it. And from my point of view, I would like to see the universities empowered in, with money, real funding, to do a whole lot of open source stuff. I mean, we're talking about looking for where it comes from. It comes from... <coughs> making a good deal with the largest company in the world when you give them your family jewels. A, a, a question. First, do, do we pay Google here? Do they pay us? Who pays the shipping of the books? What's, what is the deal there? I'm just, uh, they pay all the direct costs. Do all the scanning and getting the stuff out. So they pay for the scans and stuff? They pay for that. So, but so there are first costs to the university of doing, of preparing, of preparing the. I mean, it's, it's stuff we should be doing anyway. Get the records in order and inventory electronic. Here's the thing. A point I want to make, though. The quality of the scans is such, however, that some. 10, 20 years in the future, somebody's going to come and scan it again. So it, 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 it's important to bear in mind how Google makes its money. It doesn't make its money on search. It makes its money on advertising. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it makes about all of its money just on advertising. They're looking for inventory that they can address advertising at. And I don't know to what extent that bears on what's going on here, but I think that um, there's nothing about that that would motivate Google to preclude its being crawled by somebody else because they're going to do a better job than anybody else on advertising right now. That's where their leadership is really at its largest in that economic model. Um, the question for me is if, the, if I were to cut the deal, I would want to hunker the advertising money because it's my inventory that's being <laughs> advertised mm -hmm. against, right? Exactly. I mean, wouldn't that be the case? Yeah. Wouldn't mm -hmm. that be the deal you'd want to cut? I, right, I, I didn't mean to focus this whole thing, <laughs> no, 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 but, but, but I did. What I, I, I would like. What I, here's what I would like. 
It's a good issue. Mm -hmm. Why is it a good issue? issue? It's a good issue because it's got some bite to it. It's got some controversy in it. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to organize a conference that galvanizes a whole lot of attention so that what I would ask you to do with each of the issues that you've written down yourself is think for a moment if there's some way that it could be formulated so it had edge, so that it had bite, so that it actually picked up, you know, attention and brought people to the next food for thought thing that we try and develop. Yes, Doc? The, um, the issue about uh, Harvard uh, opening facilities in other locations, I'm, because of the medical center that's opening in Dubai, I'm mean, well aware of the project, but uh, uh, I doubt that it will be the same faculty. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, so what, in, in the case of Google and in the face of Dubai and Singapore and whatever, I mean, there is a common issue in that Harvard is selling its brand name. And uh, what is being done to ensure that the uh, that the brand will be well used? I mean, what, what will happen in Dubai? I don't know. Uh, I mean, did Harvard make a good deal with Google? I don't know. And apparently the, the, the nature of the deal is... Uh, is a bit opaque. I, I doubt that if uh, if uh, you wanted to, that you could find the nature of the financial arrangements that were made in, uh, in, in, in Dubai. I mean, as people said, Harvard's Democratic Republic. So could I ask us to move to uh, another level here? Sure. Um, we're now at the beginning of December, a couple of weeks or so in, and this conference takes place at the end of the spring. And it's still totally in formation. Our hope in doing it was that we would use what budget we've got to stimulate process that gathered people together and talked about open access issues, one (coughs) or another of these kinds, in some kind of mixed social environments that gathered people from different schools and different, just, just mix. And it would be a dream come true for me if somehow an impetus for that could come up out of the Berkman Center. So to get practical about it, we would like to organize gatherings at which issues related to openness are discussed with the idea in mind of (coughs) focusing more and more on what we actually do and produce at the conference. And we'd like to enlist the help of Berkman Center and its friends in putting those gatherings together. And I'm, we're open to breakfasts, brunches, lunches, teas, <laughs> dinners, <laughs> pub crawls, whatever. <laughs> and so the ideal for me would be if you know, you've got, you've, you've got some issue here that you focused on. And as we go around the room, you hear that there are other people who are close on your issue. What I would be thrilled to see happen is some gathering of people who relate to an issue and the undertaking to actually put on an event. We've got a little budget. Put on an event. We'll talk to you. Rebecca will talk to you about 
Could it be in a restaurant? Could it be at the Berkman Center? Could it be where? <laughs> not your Rebecca Dipney. Oh, oh. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right, so thoughts and questions, reactions to that idea? Does that seem outlandish? Does that seem impossible? Good idea. It's a great idea. We would really just love to see stimulation and feedback. And uh, the more organic it is, and the more it just grows out of Berkman Center contacts here and there, and the more cross-cutting it is, students, staff, faculty, alumni, the more cross-cutting it is beyond the university. In many ways, the better. Uh, we exist in the Cambridge community. How open are we to the Cambridge community? It's a huge issue. Uh, I should say Charles Ogletree is my co-chair for this. And Charles runs the Houston Center and the Saturday School, mm -hmm. which has just done groundbreaking work in opening up to the Cambridge community. Mm -hmm. So he's very much got an issue of that. And the biggest issue that I've been working on with my daughter Rebecca this fall, in a sense, is the mission of the Extension School, a vision of how the Extension School can structure itself in relation to the core activities of teaching at Harvard, so as to reach not only the face-to-face -face classroom, but to start to experiment with scalable education in a continuing way out and up. So many of, your, many of the issues that I heard around the room are just rife in this context that we've been working in. That seems like a tremendously central area to me. So all right, now one more thing for you right now. <coughs> we want this conference to be light in tone <laughs> and, not, and not just a, a rant on openness, which it can easily <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, one thought we've had that I like very much is to focus on heroes. Heroes. And so I want to ask you each to write down the names of two heroes. One who's deceased and one who's alive. I asked Sid from any Heroes of. Here's my thought. This is a crowd. This is the Berkman crowd. There is a sensibility, a collective sensibility here. It has to do with character at some level. I asked Sid Verba, who are your heroes? Benjamin Franklin was his deceased. Sam Beers was his Beer. live. And when I thought about that, I thought, I can see it. I could see Sid talking about his heroes as part of talking about library in some way, or at least so. it being part of the introduction. Mm -hmm. And if we could somehow infuse the conference with heroic thought, the idea that you don't have to be perfect, but you sure can go for it, that would be a great thing. And so write down two heroes. Also, architecture. I think where you meet, even though you're talking about space, 
dictates the mood of the conference. And some of those kind of creepy rooms around the university <laughs> are, are not good to introduce just the notes that you have. So I think we should also think about the physical space where you would hold this. No claustrophobic room. <laughs> well, I, I, again, our thinking on space was this. We've reserved the Ames courtroom and Sanders Theater. Uh, and okay. the conference at the moment is just two days. But it is perfectly possible to have lead-up activities of, mm -hmm. of any number. And the ideal, from our point of view, would actually be to have some event in each of the schools at the university in the most beautiful venue and have that session open to the net so that we are, we are expressing the idea of openness in the course of discussing it. Now, it's an organizational question. How does one go about interesting the various schools in doing something like this? Uh, who, who actually, how does it work within the university? We're, we're, we're at the beginning of this. Do you want us to send you emails after the seminar is over? I'd be delighted with emails. I hope I can pick up the pieces of paper that I've distributed, oh. so we actually have something mm. physical mm. to look at. I'm delighted. <laughs> what a cross I'm right over my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write with my left hand. <laughs> Serial killer writing. <laughs> conducted in Maine. They have a really neat tradition. At least they did the one time that I went. Where for lunch, they, order, they book lunch at half the places in town. And everybody's assigned a meal ticket to go to a different place at lunch. You know where you're going to go to lunch. You don't know who you're going to have lunch with you. And they make a point of making sure that everybody goes to lunch with a different bunch of people every day. And it'd be kind of a cool thing to That's do in great. Cambridge. It gets you involved in the community. That's a pop tech thing. Yeah. And it's really nice. I mean, you find yourself sitting next to people who aren't in your customary crowd. You don't go yeah. off with your friends. You, you, it, there's, it, there's really Force thoughtful cross-pollination that takes place. <laughs> It's pretty neat. And maybe you leave a couple of empty Forced mingling? Uh, that's totally. <laughs> <laughs> Coercive yeah. mingling. Okay. Coercive mingling. What's that? I say coercive mingling. So uh, these papers that you have in front of you are very like something I do in my class on a regular basis, which is feedback memos. I, on a regular basis, I'm used to asking my students to Give me your biggest thought. Give me your biggest thought. Tell me your biggest worry, your biggest fear. Say whatever you want directly to me. Sign it or not as you please. And tell me whether you're willing to have it shared. Right. That's the feedback memo. I would love to do a feedback memo here with you. I'd love to do a feedback memo with you. <laughs> So, biggest thought, biggest concern, what do you want to say directly to me? Sign it or not, as you please. And my thought would be to share it. If for some reason you don't, don't want it shared, just give me a nice big do not share. <laughs> and I won't share.
come and join. Oh, wonderful to be here. My email is nesson, N-E-S-S-O-N, at law.harvard.edu. We are eager for help in every fashion. Hey, Steve. We had a wonderful breakfast, organizational breakfast at the faculty club. We're working with a student group called Free Culture that Christina is very much involved with. We had our advisory board at the meeting, our Berkman advisory board now has been expanded so that it includes Mark Edwards from the Divinity School, Alex Kesar from Kennedy School, John Dayton from the Business School. We have our faculty members here, Stuart Schieber from FAS Engineering. And we are looking to make contact all through the university and eager to expand our advisory board among the faculty of other schools. So if you're thinking in any way of like putting together something and you see yourself empowered with invitational strength, if you're, if you're actually thinking of putting together a little event, I encourage you, think who, who would be great to have at the event and work with us in setting it up and we'll invite them. Come give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that would fly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> evidently, evidently not. Thoughts, observations, comments, anybody want to make at large here? Well, I, I wrote this down, but I might as well just say it. Um, given that, I don't know, most panels at most conferences that I've sat through have been a waste of time. Um, and so I, you know, I, whenever I have any chance to make a suggestion to people planning a conference, I strongly urge against panels. And maybe, you know, either you have a couple of nice keynotes and then the rest of it be more of an unconference where everybody in the room is really forced to participate in some way. And uh, also, I guess the other thing is maybe a way to look at the conferences rather than programming an, an event 
like, you know, kind of an entertainment thing, um, that really, really look at it as, okay, how do we create a meeting that is going to get some work done, you know, or that is going to be the departure point for a much longer standing community of problem solving um, and, and a network that's, that's going to serve as the kind of spark or, or the hook for a network that's going to form to really work through very long-term problems and issues. Um, so that well, was sort of my primary. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, yeah, I mean, we. I, I guess we just didn't, I guess when people get really busy, um, they, they, they just, you know, after a while they become really uninterested in going to something where they just have to sit through panels unless it's going to really work towards something that they see that there's going to be sort of a result and it's going to really enable them to help problem solve or, or get something done or build something new or something. Uh, I should add that it, um, we've had a series of internet identity workshops that have come out to some degree from the uh, work being done around identity at the Berkman Center. And these workshops are all done on the open space principle. That is, um, there is no set agenda. People meet at the beginning. They come up with topics. They tack them on the wall. They arrange the schedule. Um, they break out. They stay if they like it. They move to other ones if they don't. Every one of these has moved things forward in an enormous way. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's not just tectonic. It's more like going from the Precambrian to the uh, Holocene in in one move. It's been amazing how fast it goes, and it has to do with nobody being in authority, nobody being in charge, everybody doing their own work together. It's pretty neat. I recommend it. I had a, one question about the Google project. Um, who owns this data after the books are scanned? Did Terry leave? You knew you were going there. I, <laughs> I don't think it changes the ownership of the data at all. That is, who owns the disk, the, the, the actual... The yeah, if I want to go search this database of all the books of the Harvard Library, to whose house do I go to search it? I mean, is it Google. is it Google's or is it? I think Harvard retains a copy. So I, I'm reading the UMich license at the moment, which in the fourth clause explicitly states that UMich reserves the right to incorporate it within their own search services. Then there's a very complex set of contract law having to do with essentially the right to republish or re-release this, and it's a price per page to release it out to another non-UMish or non-Google entity. So I think the answer at first is you can go to Google or you can go to the university's own search services and if the university decides for whatever reason to make the material available to some other third party, money may then change hands between the university and Google for the work done in creating it. Then again, it's a 10-page contract that I barely Well, I've got you here. Let me just say. I was just trying to help Lewis. Understand. So, just taking off from what you're saying, one could imagine the University of Michigan doing something with it. Sure. One could imagine the University of Michigan joining with other universities in some kind of open source metaverse, in which part of the metaverse is the development of an open source search engine. Mm -hmm. That's not so clear from that contract. I would say it's extremely unclear from this contract. Extremely unclear yeah. from that contract. What do you think of the idea of an open source metaverse? It's, it, imagine 
all of your bias against yeah, Second yeah, Life. Yeah. But imagine I've Second been, Life. I've <laughs> <laughs> been pushing for that for day one. And, and that would solve many of my problems. Many problems. My main problem with Second Life is this notion that someone wants me to contribute my creativity and my energy to a world where the entire architecture and entire infrastructure is owned by a for-profit corporation which has built itself around pornography and real estate. And it's very, very hard for me to decide that, you know, that that's where I want to put the locus of my creativity. So I would love to see some sort of, of open source metaverse project take on. Now, similarly, I would love to see an open library project take off, an open search project take off. Now, there's one question in all of this which comes up, which is, okay, so Google strikes a deal with Harvard. It's non-exclusive. Brewster Kale comes along and says, oh, by the way, I'll do this as well. So, you know, first hand it to Google, they'll scan it, and then hand it to me, and we'll scan it. Well, Brewster is up in arms about the Google deals. And one of the reasons he's up in arms about the Google deals is that, frankly, it's just so much damn work that it seems really silly to do that work twice. I see this in some ways as Brewster saying he's not going to do that work. In fact, yeah. if you look at where Brewster's focusing, Brewster is really focusing on things that aren't going to get covered by this, because I think Brewster believes in some sort of long term there's going to be a tectonic shift in the way that we view information, and this stuff is going to become available either via licensing or either via legal change. But what I want to put on the table is this question of what projects are so big that once you have a first mover advantage in it, even if it sucks, it's really, really hard to unseat it. I would argue that search is very much one of these problems. Having helped run a very, very large search engine for a long, long time, that is really hard to do. And the notion of going head-to-head -head with Google is such a stupid idea that only the French are taking it on. <laughs> <laughs> Building an open source metaverse clearly intended to go for anyone who's not getting the irony in all of this. <laughs> That way belongs in Paris tonight. The cursing your name. Where I spoke last year. I had a good time. Where I spoke last year. You meant that ironically. I meant it ironically. Put the irony back to my I wonder whether Second Life is actually going to sort of suck the air out of the space for an open source metaverse. Mm. Certainly at the first Metaverse Roadmap Summit, this was get talked about all the time. Certainly the Second Lifers have said all the right stuff about making APIs accessible and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, you know, this is a largely closed universe, but it's a largely closed universe with an incredible hype machine behind it. And it's very, very hard to get over that popularity barrier. So one of the things that, that I just think is really worth thinking about in all of these things is, sure, it can be open. You can decide to open it up. You can decide to make this stuff available. But what if no <coughs> one uses it because you can't get sufficient momentum behind it? So anyway, that, that's, that's where all of that starts well, taking let me, me say, I am with you in a very large degree. I've developed this course in Second Life, and I am, at this point, part of the hype machine Yes. in Second yes, Life. Yes, you are. <laughs> and, uh, it, it has just these worries that you're talking about. 
at the same time, it's an extraordinary environment in which to reimagine education. And the whole issue of internet governments, governance came clearer to me through this experience than anything before. I mean, we started here with ICANN, thinking ICANN was internet governance. Well, here, here was governance in Second Life. Uh, a guy uh, who was a participant in Second Life had bought some real estate. You basically buy server space. But he had somehow figured out how the auction system was working. He hacked it. And he was able to hack in to Second Life's auction and get a whole bunch of property for practically nothing. And Second Life kind of clued into this as it was going on. I, I'm not absolutely assertive that these are the facts. This is just the way I understand the hypothetical. <laughs> and they, their first instinct was to say, oh, we see this something has been jimmied. We'll reverse those transactions and give you your money back. But then when they saw how extensive it was, they said, out, you're gone. We take all your property, we cut you out. And the user agreement completely permitted it, of course, because the user agreement was written by good lawyers who gave every conceivable arbitrary power to Second Life in dealing with users. Well, there was a problem that was in a lawyer's sense. But if you were a citizen of Second Life, if you were somebody else in Second Life, you suddenly said to yourself, these are the due process rights I have. I'm in an environment here. This is this this company is my government. And immediately what falls out is if we're gonna do internet governance in a serious way, it's gotta be an open source metaverse. Not only that, Charlie, it's the only game in town. In the sense that you have now made such a significant investment of your time and intellectual property in creating the tools in the space that you teach in, that were you to then try to lead the Second Life revolt, and their response to your revolutionary speech and activities was to shut you out of it, that might be too much of a price for you to pay. Might be too much for them to pay. That's another possibility, but it also might be too much of a price for you to pay. I Charlie's a bad example it. in terms of, <laughs> of this because he does have so much prestige associated with it. Absolutely. But comparing this to the sort of scenario that I always end up comparing this to, which is web page hosting, which is the business that I used to be in, you could always take your HTML and go run it somewhere else right. because it was open, and you can go and move it somewhere else. Nobody else runs this stuff. And, and I, I, I just don't get it. I literally do not get what is going through the heads of people who decide to make an investment in working in this space. I do not get what you're doing, Charlie. I think it's crazy. Well, <laughs> all right. So let me tell you what we're interested in doing. There's a project called Croquet, mm -hmm. which yeah. is the beginning of Been a university consortium yeah. that is developing an open source metaverse. Yes. And we would like to connect with them and yes. amplify that. And basically see what we can do to develop there. Croquet it, it is an entirely on. different paradigm. It's croquet, for folks who haven't seen it, is an entirely client-to-client -client based paradigm. Essentially what happens is you create a three-dimensional environment which is rendered by your own machine. When you move into someone else's space, you are literally moving onto their machine and moving onto their rules. And those are their rules as far as the physics of the universe. Those are their rules as far as the ownerships of the objects and the ownerships of the code. It has been put together by an utterly brilliant, so four of the, the sort of smartest programmers sort of ever to walk the earth, 
The problem is the development of it has been just glacial. Um, I remember playing with an early alpha five years ago, um, and then I looked recently and we're still in pretty early alpha. But it would be amazing if you could generate uh, the momentum for it. And similarly, at the, Meta at the Metaverse Summit, they demoed croquet extensively. And people were blown away by it. Not only were they blown away because it's very visually beautiful and it's, it's a very rich environment, but they were blown away by this notion that the work that they were doing is something that they could own instead of put on screens. But I, I guess if I were to, to pick a fight with you, which I, I guess I've done, which I haven't really wanted to today, but I'm in a, a craptastic mood. I, like, <laughs> I, I don't really understand why you've let yourself be used as part of Second Life's hype machine as opposed to embracing something like this that seems much, much closer to your principles and your values. Sounds like you a good could have Can we appear? You could <laughs> have been the key user for croquet. You still you could. Still have, and you still can. But, but you, know, you could have sat down with Dave Reed on the other side of town and been the alpha users for croquet, because the thing that they need more than anything else is an actual user base to prove that this thing is real. Instead, what's happened is you are now, along with Angie Chung, one of the four stories of something interesting in Second Life. And so every single frickin' Business Week story on this is now going to mention you and Harvard University's embrace of this platform. You have given them tens of <laughs> millions of dollars in marketing. And, and what have they given you back, Charlie? I mean, talk about the deal with Google. I, I mean, you did this out in public <laughs> fully visibly. <laughs>